Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, we offer the first in a series of special episodes featuring highlights from panel discussions conducted during BIO's virtual annual conference in May 2021. The session, Swipe Right for Your Subject, How Do You Know It's the Right One?, featured biographers Mary V. Dearborn, Gerald Howard, and Eric K. Washington. It was moderated by BIO member Gail Feldman. Good morning. Good morning. Gail Feldman, and welcome to Swipe Right for your subject. We're going to be talking about how to find the right subject for you. Many years ago, when I was just starting a biography of Bennett Cerf, the uh, co-founder of Random House, and uh, the man who, more than anybody, made it into a cultural force and who's quite forgotten today. I went to talk to Jean Strauss, very famous biographer of Alice James and JP Morgan, who had spent famously about 14, 15 years on the Morgan and had got a McCarthy Genius Grant afterwards. And I said, what, what advice do you have for somebody starting out? And she said, well, you're not going to be writing many biographies in your life. And if you want to do biography the right way and get it right, you'd better have chosen the right subject. (laughs) And I never forgot that. And I do not think truer words have ever been spoken. So... That's about what I'm going to say. And what I am going to do now is just give you the order of things. I'm going to introduce our three terrific panelists. Then each of them is going to talk for about five minutes about how uh, he or she went about choosing one of his or her subjects. And then they're gonna talk amongst themselves. There's a little bit of prodding by me. And then it's going to be a question time. And I hope that you will put into the chat box while all of this talk is going on, your own questions. So our three panelists. Eric Washington wrote his second book, Boss of the Grips, on Red Cap, James H. Williams, who was the chief porter at Grand Central Station in New York in the glory days when there really was a red carpet to get you on to the 20th Century Limited. And he has combined Harlem history and nowhere history uh, to make a fascinating book. Mary Dearborn, Dr. Mary Dearborn has written seven biographies. She started as a baby 
and her subjects have ranged from Louise Bryant and Henry Miller and Peggy Guggenheim to Ernest Hemingway. Um, she is the first woman to have tackled a cradle to grave Hemingway biography. And if I am correct, uh, she has just finished a biography of Carson McCullers. Jerry Howard. Jerry Howard is writing his first biography of a famous editor and critic, Malcolm Cowley. But Jerry Howard is doing this in his quote retirement because he's just retired from 42 years of editing, very distinguished books of all sorts, including biographies by Bio's very own Debbie Applegate, Amanda Vale, Paul Rollison, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas Mary might talk a bit about gender uh, and how that goes into choosing a subject or famous or not famous. And Eric may talk a bit about resurrecting unknown figures who were well-known in their day. Jerry will talk about Cowley, but also about how publishers see biography and what might get them to whip out the checkbook or what might get them to not. Eric, let's get going. I can talk a little bit about how I came to writing this. Um, I think he sort of discovered me. <laughs> anyway, I was giving tours of Grand Central for the centennial in 2013. And um, at first I was inclined to decline because it's not really my beat. I kind of focused more on upper Manhattan and Harlem area, but I was curious and I wanted to write something about Grand Central, not about the architecture because everyone would be writing about that. And so I thought, well, I know there's a long history of African-Americans in the railroad. I knew about sleeping car porters. I think I'd heard of red caps and just kind of thought they were the same thing. Um, I didn't know that I would hit pay dirt because it took me a second to learn that Grand Central was the central park of, uh, of railroad stations. Uh, whatever happened there, every other railroad station across the country would be sort of trying to emulate it. And so this fellow, uh, James Williams, who integrated what had been an all white workforce in 1903 and then became the chief of that force in, six years later in uh, 1909, became this really interesting figure because he had the power to hire train, fire, uh, a number of people. And then the number of people who he associated with who traveled, who were the Astors and the Roosevelts and anybody black and white who was traveling by rail, who he cultivated relationships with, um, some more profound than others. But then it was a whole other host of sort of his work family uh, that passed through, whether they were working there for a holiday week or a summer or had while they were paying for school. And this is one of the things that he became famous for, which I learned in, in the process of learning more about him, was that he expressly, not exclusively, but expressly hired a lot of young black college men so that they could stay in school. And anybody who's been in college has probably had a job, you know, waiting tables or delivering pizza or, or whatever. And um, African-American college men were no exception, but they had exceptions to what options were available to them and Williams hired them. And a lot of them became people whose names would certainly survive um, his own in familiarity, like Paul Robeson 
Adam Clayton Powell Jr., clerics, judges, linguists, lawyer, people in every discipline that one can imagine in, you know, in the living world. So I latched on to this person because I had, you know, I'm not into railroads particularly, other than, you know, watching movies like, you know, North by Northwest a thousand times, uh, which I now see differently. But I worked in restaurants for a, a good long time in, in my career um, while I was writing as a, as a, as a freelancer. And I think um, I identified a lot with this figure uh, because it's the hospitality industry. It's a, it's a branch of tourism as our restaurants. Um, there's a cadre of people who, in any kind of work community that is vast, and we're talking about him overseeing uh, anywhere from several dozen to up to like 500 people, uh, you will have these little pockets of communities within that work community, which is very much like what I was familiar with in working in, in, in one of the largest restaurants in the country. So I found a, a bond with this figure. I thought I could, I didn't have an, a real idea when I approached him how long I might be living with him. But I certainly felt a, a bond um, where I thought he's, you know, not a bad roommate for a while, for however, however long it will be. And I would say it took, all told, it was about five or six years from beginning the research that started with a little article and then developing into what was a, a published book. Mary. Hi, I've thought of a number of things just listening to you, Eric, and you, Gail. Um, I'll talk a bit about Hemingway. My last two book choices, which were Hemingway and my, uh, the one that I've just finished about Carson McCullers. And first I want to say is, Gail, you said that Jean Strauss said it was the most important decision was the subject. I would concur and say it's the most fraught and miserable making. I've never gone through such soul searching, you know, research, all this stuff. Um, only in the case of Carson McCullers was it pleasant. But as far as Hemingway goes, I wasn't, I feel like I was kind of locked into writing about him because I had written what turned out to be two biographies of very much men known for defining masculinity in the last century. That is Henry Miller and Norman Mailer. And I understood that I would have to address Ernest Hemingway. So I knew that was coming. And my decision to do it was, and I find this has been true too, is answering my own internal objections to the subject or, you know, the little voice that's playing devil's advocate in my head or my imagined editor in my head saying, no way that'll sell, you know, two books. In the case of Hemingway, they were, I'd say predominantly the one that I, well, it was the one that I was most asked, which is, is there something new I should know about? And that's really tough because a lot of times, unless we're really, really blessed, there is like a no, no huge cache of material or an estate, the difficult estate that died or disappeared. Usually it's you have decided to do it or you think that the world is ready for another one. And Number two is, aren't there enough Hemingway biographies already? And my answer to that was always, yes, except for mine. And you have to feel that you're doing something new or else it's not going to communicate. You have to have that sort of passion that you'll be saying something new. A lot of times for me, it was looking at material in new ways. And I didn't quite know how to explain that. Um, to give one example, when I started this, I was writing, going to write about the Hemingway family itself, an interesting 
difficult decision, one I abandoned. And I was at the Harry Ransom Center in Texas looking at their Hemingway material was mostly his mother's papers. Hemingway had this extraordinary mother, very difficult, but very, very, very much larger than life as he was. And I'm looking at these things and I'm saying, boy, you know, there've been a lot of Hemingway biographies, but these biographers haven't looked at these papers. You know, I was seeing stuff in them that was completely new. And I, I was getting kind of, you know, um, identifying with his mother, like, look at me, aren't I, you know? And um, it struck me then, that's when it struck me that the previous biographers had all been men. And I really do think there was a, a kind of belittling of the importance of Grace Hemingway that, yeah, it's the mother's papers. Yeah, I have to go see them. But if you go to them saying, oh, let's see what the, she has to say. Let's see what made Hemingway. It's a whole different thing. And that sort of fed into the supposed um, claim that I am the first woman to have written a biography of Hemingway, which is kind of true, largely true. But um, I, and I just very briefly, I did feel that that was something new and that I was writing a lot about the Hemingway myth and trying to dispel it. And, you know, in other words, this macho hero, you all know the drill. And I wanted to look at how that worked and how it damaged Hemingway. And it struck me that maybe a woman was the only one who was not going to be you know, at all seduced by the myth, because I feel like every biographer is. So that's, that's pretty much Hemingway, so. Harry. Mm -hmm. So this is my first rodeo, and unless some insanity grabs me farther down, it will be my last. Um, my interest in Malcolm Cowley dates from 1973 when I was just out of college and I was reading a lot of American literature for uh, a variety of reasons. And I came upon a review by William Styron of a book by this man I'd never heard of, Malcolm Cowley, called A Second Flowering, Works and Days of the Lost Generation. And there were these beautiful, personal, deeply intimate portrayals of his generation. He is of the lost generation, had many of the same experiences of Hemingway, Fitzgerald Cummings, uh, Thomas Wolfe, Thornton Wilder, et cetera, et cetera. And this had acquainted me with something, the fact that my four years at college hadn't, which were writers were actually people. Um, this hit me with the force of revelation. And uh, I went on to read um, Cowley's um, classic and first account of the lost generation, Exile's Return. And uh, then the gods were very, very kind. They found me an editorial job at Viking Penguin, and I got to meet Malcolm Cowley, which, as I have said, was approximately the same. I, I had just about the same feelings that Billy Crystal had when he met Mickey Mantle. Awe, just total awe. And I met him um, a number of times, you know, three, four times. I kind of sort of became his last editor, but I'm a book editor. I've done a lot of biographies and I was always on the lookout for somebody to do a biography of Malcolm Cowley in the same spirit that um, A. Scott Burke had done Max Perkins 
to bring somebody who is more of a player in the background to the foreground and to show how people like that influence what we read and how we value the things that we read. And I never found that person. And then there is a very good scholar, Hans Bach, who's, uh, it tells you something that he's a Dutch scholar of American studies, who has done one book on Cali and who edited a massive collection of Malcolm's letters called The Long Voyage, which I reviewed for Book Forum. And it got me to thinking, I mean, a collection of letters is good, but a biography would be better. And then I was going to work, it was maybe 7.48 on a spur of the New Jersey Turnpike in a Coach USA bus, when the fatal um, idea hit me that I should do it. And <laughs> writing a biography is really hard, folks. If you don't know that yet, I'm here to tell you, it's a lot harder than editing one. I will testify to it, but I'm enjoying it very much to the extent that anybody can ever enjoy writing. I don't know why people do it. It's just such a miserable thing. But anyway, it's a good thing too, because I got a career out of it. So in terms of choosing of subject, I'm not much help. He chose me. It was a series of circumstances over 45 years that led me to do this no escape. Uh, in terms of looking at a biography from a publisher's point of view, I actually jotted down around 10 or 12 considerations that would have to go into the choice of choosing a subject. So to do, done already, how often and by whom, done adequately or for all time, stature and interest of subject, timeliness, anniversaries, new trends, et cetera, sources, new lack of, size of potential audience, Trader University Press, is subject alive, willing, the estate, on board or against, finances needed, time needed, grants, residencies, et cetera. Finally, how badly do you want to do or need this? And I believe you could literally work these up into an algorithm, you know, the biographical choice algorithm, where you could weight these things and you could put in the data. And it would be like, in fact, I think it would be exactly like sentencing guidelines, you know, and it might be helpful, but it all comes down to the bottom consideration. How badly do you want to or need to do this? And that informs everything else. And I think any publisher, whether at a university press or a trade publisher, wants to be convinced, wants to feel the passion in the proposal, wants to feel that even if the subject is unlikely, that there's passion behind it, there's a person of consequence to be met and some cultural news to bring to the world, however many people you want to define the world as. And I can go into that subject in greater detail later. I think that what everybody has said in one way or another is that it was the passion or the sense of mission, you know, resurrecting somebody who had a consequential life, whose life mattered, who did something, and whose life, you know, speaks to you, uh, and that you're 
curious about. You're curious about the connections that that life can illuminate in that person's world and from that person's world to today's world. I think that's something that all of you have talked about. And I think that is the essential thing. Um, I'm sure there are some people who do do biographies purely for the money, but- They do it in England. In England. But I, I can't imagine, I know it wouldn't sustain me. I mean, I've been working on Surf for a long, long time because there was never a biography of him and his life covered an enormous surface. And there had to be something else that motivated it. But the, the practical matters do come into it. So would each of you, you know, like to talk just a little bit about how the practical considerations, you know, how long can you work on this thing? How much money do you have in terms of an advance or anything else to keep you going on it? Because that might determine, is it going to be a cradle to grave? Is it going to be a slice of life? Is it going to be a hundred views of, talk a little bit about those other considerations. I think I was fortunate because I didn't have, I was very naive. I've written a lot of profiles and some celebrity profiles, but never a book length biography. And I think I was just pretty naive about what it would take and what those kind of considerations to make. And I, I was blessed for having a family member who had become the repository of a lot of the photos of my subject. And he had given me his carte blanche blessing to use you know, whatever information he had and whatever materials he had. But I, I thought this will be a breeze. And because he's not so famous, this subject, you know, what, <laughs> what can there be? And I had no money. <laughs> so I had the passion and the mission. And then I think uh, I was fortunate to get a Leon Levy fellowship. And as I was paying my rent and eating at the same time, which enabled me to do a lot of the research, there is a lot more there there than I had imagined. Um, and I could see how naive I was. So in a, in a certain way, I'm glad I didn't know the caveats because I was just, I just kind of went in gung ho, but I'm also glad that, you know, this boon fell into my lap of, of, of the fellowship um, that allowed me to kind of pursue going to the archives and doing the work and taking the extra bit of time that this subject merited. So I don't know, I, I think there are a whole um, litany of things that one should consider, like how much of this life is of your life is this person's life going to take? Can you afford to do this? What archives are there? What what primary sources are there? What materials? Where are they? Are they immediate? You have to travel to them. Uh, will there be you know opposition from the family? All of those things are worth considering. But in a certain sense, I'm glad I was too naive to really know all of that stuff because <laughs> I think I might have been dissuaded and. Um, and then he wouldn't have been written about. And I think that would have been too bad because now I've, I've been able to introduce him to a lot of people who keep asking me more about him and, and are really interested and, in the, and are interested in the people who he was interested in and who he knew. So it wasn't just his world was, was indeed that. It was, it was populated by so many different types, many of whom were, you know, are recognizable figures and some are just figures that you want to say, oh my God, how come we don't, I don't know about them, you know, that this person was so instrumental or just so interesting. Mary? Um, I, I don't know, we talked about this before and I thought, um, 
when we're getting such laughable, minuscule advances, I don't know that anybody, you can't be practical about this or, or the, to put it another way, you can be very, don't expect a thing and find some other way to support yourself. That is, I remember, wasn't there something, I believe it was the 90s, maybe it was the 80s too, that was like the golden age of book advances. And then they, Jerry, maybe I'm wrong. Then they just, you know, or mine did anyway, maybe it's my, no, I think- It's uh, complicated. uh, Yeah, (laughs) but, but it used to be different and we used to like not have to worry about this. Now, I don't know. I think I make my decisions in spite of practicalities. But one thing you said, Eric, and then I'll let Jerry tell us about those advances is that you mentioned the estate and I I don't want to go on about it now, but that's a very practical matter that you really have to be serious about and see if there's going to be opposition or if if they want you to do it, you know, why do they want you to do it? Most importantly, will they demand to look at the manuscript? And if they don't, how much opposition will you get? And that's a really important consideration. Well, I'm not here to defend publishing, which is probably indefensible, but, um, <laughs> and it's certainly irrational, um, which is part of the tensions within the business, which has turned corporate, which is they corporations like things to be rational and publishing is not. And one of the markers of of publishing's irrationality is that we continue to publish biographies with the exception of certain exceptions and um, are not big bottom line contributors. Okay. Um, Ron Chernow could disagree. And, and people who write biographies of big mega stars and might disagree, and, and, and Kitty Kelly would disagree. But in general, their contributions are bottom line, are modest. And yet on the irrational side, it, it just seems necessary to keep on doing them because they're interesting in the first place. They're, some of them are very, very fine. They um, bring to the surface the stories of how our culture was made. They're important in the larger cultural picture. And that's why I published a couple of dozen of them. Uh, The other reason that publishers like to publish biographies is that they get reviewed. They're review bait. And it kind of makes you feel like you're doing something useful to pick up the New York Times or the Washington Post or uh, the New York Review of Books and see a book that you've published being reviewed intelligently and one hopes uh, favorably. So I would say to any biographer who's not Ron Chernow, look for other sources of support and income, Uh, marry well. Uh, (laughs) That's always a good strategy. Look to uh, maybe be a professor and make that writing of that biography be part of your job. That's helpful. Uh, And of course, there are many places that offer grants and residencies that that I'm lucky myself because I've managed to retire with a a decent amount of money in the bank. And so I don't have to depend on my advance, which was very nice, frankly. Thank you, Scott Moyers as Penguin. If you can arrange to have Scott Moyers at Penguin as your editor, 
do so. <laughs> and if you can arrange to have Eric Simonoff as your agent, do so because these are two wonderful people and I feel total support from them. Yeah, I mean- And by the I, I actually, I really should say there's a, that's part a joke and part not. Uh, your agent is a very, very good resource in all of these decisions. Listen, A, get an agent and B, listen to him or her. And I'm sure and, Mary and Eric would agree. And get an agent for the long haul. I mean, Eric is, Simonoff is also my agent. He is Amanda Vale's agent. He is Stacey Schiff's agent. But there are lots of agents out there who are good at doing biography. And but an agent who is good at doing biography, at working with authors of biography, is an agent in it for the long haul. Yeah. Because um, eventually, except in the case of Mary, who's ruining the curve for the rest of us, your agent is going to have to ask your editor, your publisher, for an extension. <laughs> Indeed, uh, or for many extensions, <laughs> as uh, which has, has been my case. Uh, but what Jerry was saying, um, I think we are tremendously lucky that there's a market of publishers or of editors for what we do. I mean, it's amazing that we have those built-in readers and that people will take a chance that they'll get more readers with, with the books their authors do. So I don't want to, I mean... Uh, especially when one wants to do literary biographies. I mean, these editors are um, <laughs> very uh, open to literary subjects. And anyways, I, I don't mean to at all to denigrate the publishing industry. Uh, let me do that. I know more about it than you do. <laughs> I was just going to add that I, I think the agent that I wanted, I got. And uh, she was also instrumental in making me feel that I had, I had swiped <laughs> correctly, <laughs> I had swiped right in choosing my subject. Um, and I think her enthusiasm and guidance, and uh, I don't have an ex a lot of experience with agents. I, I knew I wanted her to see it and she was interested, so I can't say what others are like, but I don't know that all agents read. <laughs> Some are good at marketing and not as good at, at reading, I think, vice versa or both, but I, I was excited that she really read the material and she read lots of material and she knew the genre and um, she had other writers uh, writing in the genre. And coincidentally, she had a client who was finishing a book um, about firemen in New York City. And he figured prominently, uh, Manhattan's first black fireman was the son of my subject. She had me do my spiel for her. She said, well, I have a Williams connection too. <laughs> so I knew it was the right person. And that was just another um, thing that sort of, added to my knowing that this subject is somebody I, I think I, it will be worthwhile moving in with. <laughs> there are a couple of other things that, that we talked about in advance. Uh, for instance, what happens if you fall out of love with your subject or how, you know, should you be in love with your subject? Uh, how do you sustain living with your subject? That's one area that I'd like you to speak briefly about. And another is the kind of research that you need to do at the very beginning in terms of making sure that are other people working on the same subject or have there been books that are very similar to what 
I want to do and is this going to work out? Could you talk very briefly about those matters? And to throw one more in, better dead than alive. So pick and choose what you'd like to talk about. Just having written a biography of Norman Mailer, I thought maybe I could speak to this, but no, just briefly, it happens. I thought Norman Mailer was the greatest thing since sliced bread. I thought the white Negro was absolutely revolutionary. Anyway, and I fell out of love, but in my experience, it, which is usually that, you know, it's less extreme. You think they've made some bad decisions or whatever, but that it does work itself out in the end. It was good training for working on Hemingway. <laughs> I neither fell in love. I mean, I was in always intrigued by my subject. I don't think I fell in love with him, but I was, I found that I had a sense of commonality. I think like myself, he, he was shy, not pathologically shy. He, he did his work. He was commanding. He commanded, you know, this small army of workers, but he was not, he wasn't a man of letters. He didn't, um, you know, he didn't speak. He was interviewed a lot. He often said pretty much the same thing, you know, to the press if he was being interviewed. So he was articulate, but he wasn't um, charismatic. But I was intrigued by the deference that was paid to him. I was nervous, though, that the family member, the great-grandson, who I mentioned, had written a book about his grandfather, my subject's son. And I didn't know about that until I was already gung-ho to do this. And then I was, I thought, oh my gosh, is he writing the family history? And um, he assured me right off, I think he anticipated, he said, I'm not planning to write a book about my great-grandfather, you have my blessing. That took me off the hook there. And he didn't make any demands or even ask to read the material, any of the material. So I had the blessing of having his blessing without any hooks uh, attached to it. Jerry? So in respect to liking my subject, I don't think there's anything that I have found that uh, has dimmed my esteem and my deep liking for Malcolm Cowley. But I would say that I'm working now on the chapter on the 1930s and the issue that I'm wrestling with is that, you know, he was a, as they say, a fellow traveler and um, a Stalinist sympathizer for complicated reasons. And I believe there's a certain amount of political idiocy in his behavior in the 30s. And he wasn't alone in that. And I am trying to talk about the mistakes that he made and which he recognized later on in a way that is frank but sympathetic because I don't want to become Malcolm Cowley's scold, but I do have to hold up the political mistakes that he made to the light of day. In respect to competition, well, there wasn't any, but apparently Hans Bach, who, as I mentioned, did the, uh, the selected letters, is working on a full soup to nuts academic biography of Malcolm Cowley, which he deserves. That is not the book I am writing. I am writing a book for that mythical beast, the general reader, and it is anecdotal. I, oh, I'm sorry, I mean episodic, in the sense that there's going to be a lot of Cowley's life that I'm just going to move past. And my aim in the book is twofold, to, um, to get more people to know who Malcolm Cowley is and why he matters. And secondly, 
to show how American literature was formed through his life and what his role in forming our sense of American literature is. And that's some that's a different aim than I believe what Professor Bach is doing. Yes, I think that it's essential that you are clear about what you're trying to do in a biography of the purpose of the book, because there can be so many stories, especially if the person had a big life. There can be so many intersections. You know, research can be fascinating, wonderful, enjoyable, interviewing can be, and you want to use all this terrific stuff you got, but there may not be room for you to use all that terrific stuff. The reader may not want to know all that terrific stuff. What the reader wants is a story, a story of a life and some other story through that life about an editor and literature and what he did, what an editor does about all of the connections that you know you you found uh, Eric, but you can't do everything. That's a lesson that I've had to learn. You have to know your limits, and that it is, after all, a biography. Which brings us, oh Eric, I wanted to do was um, focus on my subject's uh, contribution to the work he was doing, but I, I expressly did not want to celebrate the job. It was a Jim Crow job. Mm -hmm. I was more interested in how he inspired the work to kind of, uh, we have, an, uh, there's an African-American expression to make a way out of no way. Um, this like, this is what, we've, what we're relegated to in this department and we'll make it work for us because we've got to. And that interested me in exploring and celebrating their own sense of mission and purpose much more so than, than, than celebrating, you know, the grunt work that they, you know, they were obliged to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, Bennett Surf knew everybody who was anybody during his lifetime. Everybody in America knew him, but why does he matter? I mean, he's been forgotten about, but he matters because he made Random House and because he connected books and Broadway and TV and Hollywood in a way that nobody had before. So let's turn to the questions many of which are very good, and we've got quite a few. Somebody has asked, do you include the story of your passion in the actual biography, in the first person, or how you establish your voice? Um, are you in the biography? No, I wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Except maybe my implied voice in the, in the introduction, but no. Me, just briefly, too, is I tried with my introduction to Carson McCullers, and it failed miserably. So I, I don't think I can do it. I don't think I'm capable of it. Don't write that kind of book. <laughs> Jared? Um, yes, I will begin with how I got on to Malcolm Kelly, because I think it's important. I think it's, it's a good launching pad for me, okay? And I, I think I actually will need to convince readers that they should go, that there's something they should go on for. And so I'm trying to communicate my passion. 
And toward the end, I was lucky to have um, been at Malcolm's 90th birthday party up in Sherman, Connecticut, which is a scene. And I was at his memorial service at the Century Club. And these are very useful things for me. So I will, to that extent, I will be there, but for the most part, I will not. Mm -hmm. Elita George has asked Mary, but I think you could all weigh in. How much did you emphasize the faults that you discovered about your subjects? Did you lean in fully? How did you find a balance between what the learned traits you disliked? Um, <laughs> I'm trying to be diplomatic. Um, I didn't realize Henry Miller's faults until about 10 years later. Norman <laughs> Mailer, though, I think that because I did start off just admiring him so much and then you strike a balance and you become more alert to subtler things that I think are more important finally about your subject. In that sense, it can be good, like that Mailer was eternally curious that he had his finger on the pulse, as they say, and so forth. But Hemingway is the character where, not because of negative things about him, though there sure are those more his, his faults, his, um, his um, failings, his, uh, how was I gonna convey those and yet not have it be a, a negative biography, something that I'm, um, where I'm just cutting him down. And I think the challenge, the real challenge, and it was, it came very naturally, um, was a, a kind of compassion or protectiveness of him set in with me. And I just couldn't stand to see him instinctively um, denounced or whatever. I just, especially because of his failings and his faults and the things I found wrong with him, I felt I needed to protect him. I think that works out okay. It's real complicated, isn't it? It sure is. Um, Amanda Vale has a question. Some biographers want to have access to their subjects' archives or permission from their subjects or their estates to write a biography. Other biographers feel this kind of sanctioned access compromises their ability to be objective and prefer to write unauthorized biographies. How do you feel about this? How would access or renunciation of it influence your choice of a subject? My subject didn't really have archives other than I mentioned this relative, this is great grandson who had become the repository of all of these photos and things like that and, and had written about his grandfather. So I thought he might be a bit possessive and he wasn't, but I certainly, I knew that now this exists. Somebody, he's got boxes and reams of whatever of photos and I'd like to get my hands on them. So I was obliged to ask, but I held my breath <laughs> because I didn't know if there would be a catch. And I was lucky there wasn't. I was concerned there was one uh, descendant who was alive when my subject died, she would have been eight. And she wouldn't, of course I wanted to speak to her and she wouldn't speak to me. She wasn't hostile, but she just wouldn't return my. So I, all along, I, I never knew if I would have to anticipate some sort of opposition, you know, in the background and that didn't happen. But I, I was aware that that could be a problem if, you know, I wanted to have access to what archives there were, and then there was going to be a catch to it. Like, well, yes, you can have this in exchange for, you know, showing me your manuscript or whatever. And that, that didn't, I was lucky that didn't happen, you know. In my particular case, 
Callie's archives are, and quite a lot of them are at the Newberry Library, beautifully, beautifully cataloged. And, um, and it is a much traveled archive among scholars of American literary history. And I do have the blessing of, of Malcolm's son, Rob Callie, to do this book. So that's not an issue. Speaking as a former editor, I mean, I tended to uh, prefer to have biographies sign them up without problems in the beginning and unauthorized can translate into problems down the line. Hmm. I mean, it would really depend on whether the, the headaches were worth it. I was very interested in a uh, signing up a biography of Edward Gorey by uh, Mark Derry. I really, really wanted to do that book for because the proposal was very good and I was interested in Gorey. And that did not have the blessings of the Gorey estate, but it seemed surmountable and, and it was. The book came out, it was very good. Um, a less happy story would be the biography of um, Susan Sontag by Carl Rowleyson that um, I signed up for Norton. That was flagrantly unauthorized and it was really a horror show. I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> it was so difficult. There was so much opposition to that book. Yeah. Mary? Amanda and I have this argument a lot, but I could only write an unauthorized biography. I don't, I just feel I would be too constrained. I mainly, I don't think I'm diplomatic enough. I mean, it's, if there's an estate who's, you know, looking over your shoulder, I, it would be hard for me to function. And then it comes up other times. And like, if I'm, I'm um, there, well, with a living figure, it's going to come up a lot. But people I've interviewed, any interview out there is just going to, um, their hair's going to turn white. But in the case of a male or wife and a male or girlfriend, agreed that they could look at what I was writing about them. I was so bending over backward. And that's very bad policy. And I didn't, it didn't work well. And I'm afraid that I do that with an estate who, who was authorizing what I, what I was doing. And in with Hemingway, I tried to, there's an estate that wants royalties and uh, I just tried to fly under the radar and not deal with the estate. And sometimes that works. Beverly Gray has asked a question that is related to this. How do you figure out if there's an estate that might intrude on your project? She says that her subject was a gay man who died in 1985. His longtime partner died and there's no close family still alive. Hundreds of boxes of papers are in local universities. They're not restricted, but where do you look to find out if there are unforeseen issues? Tim to find out. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes the, the editor is the one who brings this up too, and you have to go and find out. And it's hard, there's not like some address that all, you know, these estates are, it's hard to find out. Sometimes you hear at the archives. You gotta go through the, the settling of the estate. I mean, oh. probably have to, maybe you have to hire a lawyer or, a, or a, um, a paralegal to find that out for you. I mean, it's sort of one of these 
other biographers often know or, you know, say, oh, isn't there a problem with his son? And, you know, you find out and you will inevitably find out. And I, I, I think that the librarians at major archives, they are really helpful, really smart people. And uh, they remember the people who, you know, come in and who are doing research and the stories that those people tell them. And they often provide useful information. My, my first family contact happened to be the right person. There was no official estate. There was a collection of papers for uh, Wesley Williams, my subject's son, at the Schomburg. And mm -hmm. so he was the sign-off person for, for, to give permission to use some of the some of the images that had been donated to the Schomburg, but I otherwise didn't run into that problem. So I was lucky to find the one person who kind of spoke for. Right, right. But she was actually, I should say that she was gung-ho once the book came out. <laughs> so I must thank our wonderful panelists. You've done a terrific job, truly. And I hope it will give some people a bit more courage to get on with it, choose your subject, and just do it. <laughs> Thank you. You just heard highlights from the panel discussion, Swipe Right for Your Subject. How do you know it's the right one? From BIO's annual conference held virtually in May 2021. It featured moderator Gail Feldman with panelist Mary V. Dearborn Gerald Howard, and Eric K. Washington. To learn more about BIO or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Oh,